0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I sat down to chat with the founder of Gamex Bikes, Pascal Tenner, to talk about the very interesting trajectory that he's charted for the brand, because not only are they making some downhill bikes with very wild machined aluminum construction for the frame, but as a small brand, they're already running a World Cup race team, there's some very interesting stuff going on with the frame geometry and design, including the fact that it's running a pinion gearbox with a belt drive, and a whole lot more. So. Pascal and I run through all that, and along the way we talk a bunch about how he has thought about designing a bike, and what's gone into learning how to design a bike as someone who doesn't have an engineering background particularly, and a whole lot more. It's a fun one, and there's a lot of good stuff in here, including some teasers of what Gamex is up to and what will be coming out in later this year. But before we dive into that, I want to take just a moment to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus Spot membership, which gives you not only all of the benefits of a Blister membership, including being able to send me an email and chat about your upcoming bike purchase, but also $25,000 of zero-deductible insurance coverage for accidents sustained mountain biking, skiing, running, and a whole bunch more. The whole list of activities covered is in the link in the show notes, so check that out, and both save yourself a lot of money next time you get hurt, and also give yourself the peace of mind of not having to worry about paying to go to the doctor to see what's going on if you have a more minor injury that you might have just let ride and hope heals on its own in the past without this kind of coverage. There's a lot to be had here, so check out the link in the show notes and get yourself covered. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Pascal Tanner. Well, Pascal, great to sit down and chat. How are you today, and where are you today? Uh, Thanks for having me on,
1: Dave. Uh, I'm at our HQ here in Switzerland, so it's just snow has just come in, so it's a good time to sit down and talk about stuff, so uh, I'm doing fine. Can't wait for the snow to go away, (laughs) of course, but uh, yeah, the year is winding down a little bit. We kind of... Are already in planning for racing for next se- season because there's quite a few changes coming in terms of the racing series with ESO or Warner Brothers taking over so that takes a lot of planning and stuff and then also preparing material and stuff for the boys to to get racing while pushing a few projects that you'll see in 23 coming to life so uh, it's been rather busy but we're also happy to have a week off soon <laughs>
0: Yeah, fair enough. And uh, a lot of interesting stuff teased there. We'll circle back to some of that in a little bit here. But I guess just to kick it off, I mean, Gamex is kind of a little bit smaller company and running a World Cup race team with from a company of your size is a little unusual, I think it's fair to say. And the <laughs> bike is not exactly conventional either. So just to kick it off, I mean... Take us through the founding of GAMEX and kind of where you started and what you had in mind for the company when you first kicked it off.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, it's basically me and my brother being alpine ski racers before. So uh, we had a lot of racing in our our youth. And uh, racing has always been a core part of what we are doing. So the competitiveness and also kind of knowing how you set up kind of a performance oriented uh, how you say environment around you, so you're able to perform adapting skis and, you know, edge angles and all these things, testing stuff. So I think that kicked off uh, that kind of approach also for mountain biking. So me personally, I was in a sports school. I don't know if you call that in English. So it's like a gymnasium or how do you say? a. What's before university, high school, right?
0: Yeah, high school. Yeah,
1: high school. So uh, I was there for four years and I got to meet some guy who was already w- racing downhill World Cups as a junior. And that got me hooked into the downhill side of things. And then we basically, when I stopped ski racing, we just a bunch of friends, we started a little uh, team to travel all the amateur races in, in Europe. So that was basically my friend Noah, Eve, myself, my brother, and me parents helping us out driving us to locations and that just basically escalated into what we now know as Gammax factory racing or Gammax as a brand in between that period between like 2009 or 20, 29 at 2009 I should say up to like now end of 2022 we had the opportunity to grow the team and work with a bunch of different OEMs on almost every aspect of racing. So in terms of developing tires or frames, uh, getting kind of get to know how the industry works in this kind of sense. So we were kind of now leveraging these, these experiences, um, into our own, into our own broad product. That's, as you said, a bit out there, a bit different, but, uh, I'm sure we get into the details of why and how we think about stuff, but uh, we have. I think we went through uh, three or four different OES, bigger OES, where we could contribute to to their downhill and freeride bikes and uh, help them with kinematics because we quite soon found out that we are probably not the best kind of racers. We're not the 0.1 percent, like. Brendan or when we worked with Scott or then later with Venice when we had Slabek on the team. These guys are just different animals. We could get close, but it's not like at the World Cup, you know, trying to qualify and all this stuff. You need to be on top of your game. So we, Dominic, myself and then uh, getting to know Romeo, which is the third guy uh, on the company uh, who we met at local races and that just kept on being a really good relationship. We operated a little bike park for a few years. We organized national races and then also national championships. And through that relationship together, we kind of said in 20, end of 2018, we said, right, that's us. Uh, we need to sort of find uh, a way where we can actually like put our own kind of concept together. And that's where we started. Gamex or our company as it stands now, uh, with the debuting of the of the say downhill bike uh,
0: early last year. Yeah. Right, so it certainly makes sense that this company that kind of started out more as a race team than a frame manufacturer, at least initially, would uh, sort of continue on with that lineage of being so race focused as you are but i guess i'm curious kind of as you said you know you worked with a couple different oems you had frames from other companies that you were working with and where along that line or what kicked off the line of thinking that it was time for you to go your own way and start building your own frames rather than working with outside partners for those what made you have that realization
1: i think what really then Tipped our opinion over from being like dependent on OE uh, to become our own OE, basically saying, is when uh, we encountered the difficulties that are involved with manufacturing overseas, like in Taiwan specifically. Um, not to say that they don't do good work, they do amazing work of uh, in terms of quality and communication. These people are really dedicated, but In order for us to just make an example, get a custom link made really quickly or finding these little improvements that we would need to have in order to like adapt geometry or uh, leverage ratios, all these little things Eraser wants to have. We said, okay, maybe there's some potential in digital uh, engineering environments and uh, we ventured around for like one and a half years in trying to figure out how to do it because you have multiple different technologies like additive manufacturing, CNC machining, welding, carbon fiber, all these things. So where can we actually find a point of entry into this kind of, it's almost like a black art that when you start out um, to start and understand how we can Accelerate like the development time that it takes from a concept for a single rocker link or even a complete bike up to the point where you have a raceable product or a, pro- a rideable prototype and not have it take two years of your time span up because you're waiting and then shipping doesn't work. And especially with COVID, that was actually even worse now through the, through the last two years. But um, that's where the idea came from. Uh, to produce our own bikes. So we went out to multiple different uh, manufacturers in Europe, trying to see if we can make like a collab. So basically taking one of their mountain bikes over and I have to give big credit to Federico from MDE bikes in Italy, allowing us to make our, kind of take his design and kind of adapt the geometry and slight changes to kinematics in order to have a race bike, which only the raced braced in 2019 or 2020, I should say, first year of corona racing 2020 and kind of kicked off that whole process and we were able to learn besides just the engineering side also the manufacturing side and kind of clarify how we can use our digital environment speaking of CAD and FA or how you say fine element simulation and generative design all these models and making it into a process where we don't have to spend actually two years developing something until it's rideable, where we can take it down to like eight weeks to have a rideable prototype. So.
0: Yeah, that's certainly quite a different turnaround time than most companies have to work with and and just,
1: just to clarify, I'm speaking about prototype, not the final product, because you've got to care about of course, cable routing and all, all the little tolerances. You might get your brake adapter not right, so you shift it a bit with some spacers and stuff, but like, make it rideable and you're actually to, able to gather test valid testing data. So,
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of always the case with these things where getting the first 90% isn't of the time, it's like those those last little details end up just dragging on for forever. But so I guess, yeah, tell us a little bit about that first bike that you put together and started making modifications on and kind of what the design looked like, what you hoped to change Mm -hmm. about the initial iterations and kind of how you're thinking about what you wanted to evolve as you started on it.
1: Sure, yeah, I think... We got to know Federico through like by accident, actually. So Romeo was looking around and finding this little boutique Italian manufacturer that's located just outside of Turin or Turino, as they say. And uh, we basically just wrote them up an email and said, Hey, we need some race bikes. Uh, Are you willing to take your, it was called, I think the lumberjack back then the model, which is a short link four bar bike. So it was like a virtual short link uh, system and take our inputs to it and manufacture a few custom frames for it. And he was willing to do that. He gave us actually a good, a good price as well. So very, very cool of him. I'm actually, I was meeting him at the Eurobike and it was nice to see him and saying, yeah, you great job with your bike. And I can kind of the, the circle closing back up after, after doing our own thing. So these relationships, they are so valuable for us, but, um, Yeah, that's where we started. We basically adjusted it to make it a fully functional 29er downhill bike because that's just before Mollet was coming in. Um, So we basically lengthened the chainstay, adapted geometry points a little bit. Um, We didn't actually change the kinematics so much because Federico already did a crazy good job. Uh, I was just missing a bit of uh, rearward axle path, but when you have good kinematics, aside from axle path it does already a really really good job so we are actually quite happy with the bike as it was we had a few issues with as you know workup racers they probably break every bike imaginable so we had to in the process of learning what does a longer front triangle wrong longer rear triangle mean in terms of frame uh, how you say uh, longevity Uh, We learned quite a bit, so we added a few gussets and tried different top tubes and stuff like this. But in general, that was quite a a good base to start from. And then we brought in like additive manufacturing to manufacture our own links and dropouts to being able to quickly adjust to rider needs. So we then raced this bike for a full season with Andy back in 2020. And then the whole COVID thing actually like broke out so Andy had the opportunity to go to the Atherton program and we were saying yeah you should be able to to go there and fulfill your dreams because at this point we were not able to provide the sort of structure you would need to be a top 20 guy at that point in time so uh, we took kind of a year off because our rider we had for uh, 21 had a knee injury like uh, ACL I think it's called in, in English language so we were kind of there, wanting to go racing, but like just for us to go racing by ourselves is not the same as you, when you go with your infrastructure and team and you see all the World Cup guys. So we then specifically said, okay, now it's really time to think about our own concept. Let's take 21 for uh, the development of our own our own bike, and that's when the first Seiko ideas, actually, or the CNC bike ideas, actually came together. And when we also met up with a dear friend of ours uh, who's working at Hayes Europe, is Chris, Christian Bartik, um, where the whole connection with the Hayes money to conglomerate uh, actually started working out. So,
0: yeah. So, I mean, you kind of teased a little bit of it there, but uh, that first round of the Sago prototypes in 2021 were. Something pretty different. Um, as you n- noted, machined aluminum frame and uh, built around a pinion gearbox, high pivot mullet, kind of a lot of the things that we are seeing more and more of of late really popping up in that. And uh, let's go through that design in a bit more detail. I mean, kind of how did you, what were your goals for it and how did you arrive at all of those? different elements is the best way to achieve them. Sure.
1: Yeah, I think there's two main trains of thought uh, to this. So first of all, you want to have the kinematics and everything as you want. So we were looking at this leverage ratios and going back and forth with different concept in the linkage program. So that's like a little, for, for listeners, that's like a little 2D program where you can basically start your own little imaginable bike company. So you try to change pivot points in order to make the values you want. So leverage ratio, anti-squat, anti-rise, all these values that affect how your bike works kinematically when it's on the trail. Um, this is not very, this is very potent to analyze kinematics, but it's not very potent to analyze, uh, dynamic, uh, riding behaviors. But uh, that's the one side. So that's where the first prototype was a four bar high pivot design, uh, where we made that up and thought, okay, that, that should do the job. We wanted a bit of rearward axle path, but we didn't want to go crazy high with the high pivot. So we still have like manageable dynamic characteristics of the bike. So your front and back movements and weight balance shift would not be too crazy away from a conventional design. And on the other hand, we needed to find a uh, a technology that allowed us to produce in Europe with high precision. So we don't have to like redo bearing seats. And, you know, as a little company, you basically want to have something out of production that you can straight assemble and try and ride. So uh, there was a competition between, the original plan was to do it fully in additive manufacturing. Uh, so with aluminum uh, printing parts like, uh, non-bonding but basically printing the whole frame but at that time the machines were not able to uh, have the how do you say tolerances speci- specifically like uh not bearing seats or stuff like this because this you would need to machine anyways after but like in terms of okay there, is the bike actually straight in in a line um isn't the head angle like slightly tilted because the issue with at, the, at this stage with 3D printing was the enormous heat that would be generated in the building chamber so things tend to warp a little bit so uh, we then went oh there's CNC so why don't we try to just design up in our uh, CAD environment like a like the frame that it goes along with the kinematics and that's where CNC actually came in and I think we started in May designing the bike and we were riding mid-June on the bike so that was a really quick turnaround and I think it went actually too well (laughs) because uh, the first we then or me personally with support of Romeo and Domi we went to the Euro Cup in Brandtnertal which is like the the level of racing just before uh, World Cup and I managed to get quite good runs in and the bike felt actually really good um when you got over how it behaves in terms of stiffness and stuff because you need to ride it a bit differently in terms of you can't square up a corner like 90 degrees because the bike just wouldn't respond in a classical manner but once you get your head around this it was actually feeling quite good and this track is kind of semi-flat so it's not really steep but it has a lot of roots and it's quite rough so with the compliance from the cnc and the H bar design it was actually going really well and I managed to actually get in finals. I think I got a time that would put me in the top 20 in the big boys final. So actually we were probably also a bit too confident. And then, uh, yeah, throughout more and more testing throughout the 21 season, we then came up with another kinematic system that allowed us to actually produce uh, two swing arms so left and right side. So we could get additional stiffness into the rear end while uh, still keeping the high pivot concept Uh, so that's how the sego as you know it today actually came about with the high pivot single single pivot uh, design with a rocker link and a push link which is i have to be honest i was riding a nuke proof before so i like that bike and i was like "Hmm, let's try do some simulations with that kind of kinematic concept and add a High pivot, so have to get give credits to the guys and new proof for for having already a good good like uh, example in front of us (laughs) to kind of try to put our spin on.
0: Right, and as you alluded to there, not only is the frame machine out of aluminum, but in contrast to most of the handful of other machined aluminum frames out there it's not done as a clamp shell with a bonded lap joint for the two halves of the front triangle it's just a one piece kind of i beam looking arrangement to it and uh just sort of curious i mean it's a bit different how'd you arrive at that was this again something that was just sort of driven by keeping it simple and getting something that you could just turn around quickly and give it a go or What was the thinking behind that?
1: I think there's again, there's like two main aspects to this. One is we didn't have any experience in bonding. And uh, as Poly or uh, Actify or other similar companies have shown that this is not super simple to do, because machining like a thin wall thickness half shell is actually quite a bit of a challenge, especially when you don't have your own CNC machine. So at this point we said okay we need to get out something that we can actually manage and understand. So the less components there are in the main frame, we weren't really uh, worried about the rear triangle because you can get the stiffness of this quite simply with with machining. Um, so uh, what what we do so with with CAT simulation we use it was super simple for us to get a gauge on how the frame would actually hold up uh, when it's of one solid material. So it's you don't have to simulate joints or weldings or bonding areas and stuff. So that's, I think, the main drivers. And then we got in contact with some manufacturers or some suppliers of CNC stuff. And uh, they said, yeah, it looks doable. So uh, we were quite quick in taking this decision to take it down that road route. And also there has been a Swiss company before that did something similar in this kind of way, which called Ribisu, which was from two hours or three hours away from here. So we knew it was doable and kind of if you remember the Empire bikes from back in the day, I think they were injected mol- injection molding or something. I don't know if they were completely CNC, but we kind of knew that this is going to work, sort of, but we need to adapt it to modern geometry and try to digitalize the whole the whole process in order to make it scalable so we already knew back then we're not developing something just out of the blue because it's fun but at some point we really want to sell these things as well to customers and make them happy and have a great experience out on the trail despite it being a really race focused product but uh, cnc allowed to allowed us to do that, especially without having the addition of bonding and complicated joints and whatever. And there were also a, quite a few patents or patent pendings by companies that were already doing it. So it's kind of, you need to reinvent the same thing they already did. And then you try also to have your USP visually. So you don't want to look the same as Poly or Actify or all these other brands. So, so it's, it's just not another half shell bonded together so it's 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 unique thing
0: yeah i mean it certainly is that and the patents that you're referring to there those are to do with the bonding process specifically
1: yeah just basically how poly in uh does it for there i figured out how they do it but uh you need to your own machine to do that and they do an absolute amazing job on how they do it but um it would it would have been first from a moral point of view, it would have not been cool to go in and basically do the same thing because I think they deserve to be the unicorn with this kind of technology and uh, doing our own thing and being unique in our own way because I think there's place in the market for specific bikes and we didn't give a fuck, sorry when I'm swearing about uh, what people were thinking at that point because we just wanted to have the, the best performance we can Uh, from something we can control fully and fully understand because you can have a big horizon or a far away horizon on what you want to achieve, but actually growing it organically so you can kind of understand and evolutionize the product further down the line gives you much more reliable data to base your decisions on rather than changing it every year or every half year or making something you don't understand. So. I think that's what was driving the decision to take it down
0: that road. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And as you sort of touched on, doing a bonded joint like that's kind of a deceptively tricky thing to do well. I mean, the... And I think the note you had about sort of just the simulation and that side of it makes a ton of sense, too. If you've got just a single machined aluminum front triangle kind of setting up the constraints to accurately simulate the strength and stiffness of that in CAD is fairly straightforward but once you introduce that bonded joint kind of telling the CAD package like exactly what you actually have there and how the bond works becomes enormously more complicated and hard to do accurately and so
1: absolutely Especially at that time, we didn't know how to do it, but it was fairly easy for us to figure out how to do a static simulation and do a bit of generative design, topology optimization. So that was because, thanks YouTube, you can learn a lot of stuff really quickly, even if you're not a trained engineer. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, yeah.
0: Yeah, and well, on that note, you sort of touched on the things that you did and didn't have experience with as far as design goes kind of what sort of engineering and machining background did you bring to this whole project and where what were you starting from at that stage
1: absolutely none <laughs> so i'm uh how you say this bachelor degrees in economics my brother has a degree in digital business management and romeo is a uh, trained, uh, how you say, uh, a sa- salesman. So, uh, so he was also working in event industry. So he has a lot of hands-on experience and is very organized. And you know, he has all these traits you want from a race team operator, basically. But uh, the experience in terms of knowing our way around bikes came from working with these OEMs the years before. So that's where I learned uh, from a bunch of different people. Uh, within the industry, which we still have good relations like Federico or Jürgen from MiTech, who were willing to help a bunch of crazy guys trying to figure out how to build bikes. And then we always have been quite good kinematically. So drawing up a, a kinematic system that works and makes sense because that was kind of my passion for myself or a bit of a hobby before this thing got serious. So we figure out the kinematic stuff really, really quickly, but then it take it took us a lot of time to get our head around all the little knocks and crannies on on a CNC machining or the different manufacturing technologies because you actually cho- you can choose from so much stuff, uh, fiber construction or what different fiber construction methods and then CNCing is not exactly CNCing in another guy's head. And then additive manufacturing brought a whole other level to that. So we were really trying to figure out what to choose for what we understood the best, the quickest, in order to get that thing off the ground and kind of be competitive in a five-year span with the product.
0: Right, Okay. And I guess along those lines, I'm just always curious to hear about folks who have this idea to build a frame that are coming at it without having necessarily a ton of experience. As engineers or anything like that I mean you had people like Nico Mulally on the show and uh, Evan Turpin with Contra bikes and part of what fascinates me about it is that um, I do actually have a mechanical engineering background and worked as one for quite a while before making this move and I've got as I've joked on here before I mean I've got tons of linked files and some pretty complete CAD of a bunch of bikes that I've cooked up over the years but haven't ever really come all that close to getting any of them built it's been kind of more at the idle daydream stage and uh i think for me a lot of that's that i've got the design side of things figured out pretty well I kind of know what i'm doing there and i'm a halfway competent machinist but um only kind of nominally know how to weld i'm pretty terrible at it and like I've always felt like if I was going to go build a frame, I'd really kind of want to be able to do it myself. And just the welding is like specifically the thing that I really feel like I don't have the competency at to do it properly at this stage. And so I'm just always impressed with folks who kind of are starting from, I mean, less of a background than I have perhaps and, still manage to go forward and make something cool because I just haven't mustered up the time and willpower to to do it and so I mean I'm curious like how once you started off down this path how did you go about learning what you needed to do and figuring out all the steps that had to come together to put a bike together
1: yeah and I think as you as you say right and sometimes when you are trained as something like for me as an economist, I try to do my business management like in a classical way so you know all these concepts and how to do your bookkeeping and how to avoid big tax bills and stuff like this, fully legal of course. Um, But sometimes it kind of clouds your horizon a little bit. So sometimes having some fresh perspective coming from another side, you, you are able to think outside of what's known within a certain industry especially if you look into into the cycling industry, we have basically, we have been welding frames for years and then carbon manufacturing came along and this technology is kind of already, is, is so much potential in there, but it's all, almost kind of peaking already. So um, we were thinking a lot about, okay, as I, as I mentioned before, how we can do our own thing and stuff. And then it's just basically leveraging your network and getting to know people along the way and listening very very closely sit down with people have a chat about things over a beer and just taking advice in and uh, gathering all this information and data and then what actually accelerates your learning the most is then just do it just do it put all the hours in i mean we three between romeo dominic and myself we're probably working 80 hour weeks for two years now without big holidays or stuff, just our holidays are racing basically but you just need to get it done and you need to try and you don't need to be afraid of what people think of you because in this day and age it's so so difficult to be not offended by something on the internet like on the when we started with our first little 3D printed gadget products, I mean we were we, we got roasted on the internet on some other, uh, mountain bike platforms of this is the most stupidest ideas we have ever seen. And this is not going to work, it's going to crack. And you have all the armchairs engineer, they probably know a lot of stuff, but they probably, and I'm not trying to offend anyone, but they haven't probably did it in the same way as as we did, just went out there and tried. And I think that's the key to everything. If you want to fulfill a dream of, or a concept of something, uh to make it a real thing and then once you've done your prototype it's not done that's where the work actually just starts but i think uh, we met a lot of good people along the way and i need to mention alex as well uh, who's our cnc supplier from desion it's a swiss company that has a few different uh, hubs around Uh, and they do most of the manufacturing for us and uh, he has been with another Big Swiss bike company before, so he knows his. He's a racer himself, so he knows his head around. Uh, we got great help also from from Dan, um, who works uh, for a German bike company as well. So he knows his things around engineering. So I got to look, learn from him as well about bearing tolerances and all these things. You know the little things you don't know as a as an untrained engineer. So uh, it's just basically leveraging your network and listening closely
0: and just do it, just doing it. <laughs> yeah, just doing it goes a long way. And mm. You can learn a lot by doing that. Yeah. And So I guess I'd love to go into some of the other finer details about the frame, in addition to the machine construction that we've been talking about, built around a pinion gearbox and running mullet wheel configuration. What drove those, and how did you Decide to go forward with those bits.
1: Yeah, the pinion actually came about a, on a trail bike prototype we did with a German company that's called MeTech, which does offer some white label welding services. And he has a bike. or oh, Jürgen is his name. He has a bike with a pinion gearbox in his lineup. And we were just that looks good. We knew Pinion from the internet, of course, and seeing them around uh, at Eurobike and stuff like this, but. Uh, we just went there, We, I think he made five trail bike or free ride bike prototypes for us and I was testing that stuff out and I could instantly feel the kinematic advantages with it and that has mainly, or in our opinion, has mainly to do with unsprung versus sprung weight. So, you, it's like basically all the benefits you have when riding an e-bike in terms of grip and confidence when you're going through rough stuff. So it quiets down the chatter a lot. You have this stuff with the gearbox without the added penalty of the battery weight and motor weight. So in terms of a downhill drive train with the six gear gearbox, is actually only a 200 gram difference. You need to construct your frame a bit differently. So that adds a bit of weight because you have this kind of bridge you need to with the mounting points. But um, we instantly felt the potential of that thing. And then we kind of getting co- got in contact with Pinion through through Jürgen as well. So he opened the channel for us. So we got to sit together with uh, the guy who did sales at the time. And he then introduced us to Dirk, who is head of marketing, I think. Don't quote me on this, but he's like running our relationship and then we were able to basically say, okay, this is probably a cool marketing project for both sides. And then now we're involved with their development as well. So there's a lot of communication going back and forth and new concepts and, hey, can I tilt the gearbox here? Can we do that? And what about this and so on? So uh, yeah, now, even with the belt drive coming in, that just adds another cherry on top and like completes the whole package with gates coming in now. Uh, We were actually able to get the UCI to allow belt-driven systems now in the World Cup. So that's been the work of my brother and the guys over at Gates. And I have to mention Ryan here doing a fabulous job um, with getting that set up. So now it's the whole package is like in terms of drivetrain is really coming together. So, you know, have no maintenance basically unless you hit your bike 90 degrees into a big pile of rocks or something, but also there. There's bash guards and like uh, skid plates to prevent that from happening. But now it's really we are super excited for 23 because like finally we have all the allowance in terms of, or uh, the we can actually race it as it's just just some kind of concept lurking around in the back of the shop here. So yeah, that came that came through that initial testing with those trail bikes and now we're uh, I think. When the track is not too pedally at this point, we absolutely have more benefits than uh, uh, disadvantages. When it's super pedally, it's not due to the gearbox itself that we're at a disadvantage right now, but more through our frame construction, how we located the pivot points in terms of uh, the idler pulley setup and all these things. But uh, also that has been improved over the last four or five months. So. Uh, we're looking pretty solid now, and we're pretty confident that we can uh, compete with every other high-pivot bike on drivetrain efficiency, even with a normal drivetrain now.
0: Yeah, that all kind of checks out to me, and I've not yet had the opportunity to ride a DH bike with opinion on it, but have ridden some trail bikes a little bit. And, I mean, certainly the advantage in terms of reducing unsprung weight, very clearly real but i think yeah the application of a dh bike seems like it's very well suited to taking best advantage of the upsides of opinion and kind of mitigating some of the drawbacks particularly just the drivetrain efficiency not being quite there compared to just a conventional chain drivetrain and but on the flip side things like being able to shift while not pedaling particularly on a DH bike seems big the unsprung weight is super useful to cut that back uh for suspension performance reasons so yeah i think it seems cool and kind of strikes me as a good application for them yeah and i think one thing
1: i need i i want to mention to come back to the point of efficiency actually the longer you run your gearbox the more efficient they get. And that's completely the opposite of what your normal uh, chain drive system or derailleur cassette setup would do. So uh, throughout testing or throughout the last two years, we figured out the old, we loved the oldest gearbox the most. And then once, because the, the belt line or the chain line is always straight, if it's actually set up correctly and you have a worn-in gearbox, it's actually more efficient than your normal de- derailleur setup, when, when it's not in the middle gears. So as soon as you go to your harder gears or your lighter gears, depending on the offset on your uh, uh, yeah, w- how you manage your chain line, it's actually getting more efficient. What people have trouble or had trouble in the past getting used to is the change in mind to shift when you're not pedaling versus when you're pedaling, and because this is a the 1.9 gearbox is a three by three gearbox system. You can actually shift under semi-load from first to second, from second to third, but you can't do it from third to fourth. So you kind of need to be a bit aware of where you are in the gear range. But once you get that figured out, it becomes actually super intuitive doing it. But it needs it needs a rider at this point in time. It needs a rider to be able to to kind of uh, how you say change the philosophy in in his or her. Uh, thinking in order to adapt but once you've done it everyone we had testing our bikes was actually saying yeah that makes quite a bit of sense and now we've uh, seen we've seen smart shift from pinion coming in which is basically an electrically shifted uh, uh, version of the gearbox in combination with e-bike drivetrains. for now um, and that will again change the whole thing completely because then you're electrically able to do some magic
0: (laughs) yeah that's always struck me as kind of the next place to go with gearbox development and the kind of current limitations of having to have two cables in the shifter system that works with that and so on seems like there's a lot of potential to really improve that aspect of them with electrification so excited to see more on that front i think it's heading in the right direction and just need to get the development done. But uh, how about mullet wheels? Why'd you go that way? Mm,
1: I think we don't have anything against 29, 29 or 27 and 27. Every wheel configuration has its purpose. And uh, I think it was just mainly a preference from my personal riding. So because I was the guy kind of doing the testing in 21 on that bike, And uh, the rider Loris that was on the team at that stage was kind of the same height and we kind of have the same sort of preferences in terms of frame sizing and stuff. Uh, We just said, okay, let's go for one single option for now. Uh, There will be a 29-29 option coming because Lino that's been on the team this year and will be again next year. He's like one meter 92. I don't know what this is in feet, but probably six, six foot or something it's like this,
0: like six foot four thereabouts.
1: Yeah, he's a, he's a tall dude. So he's actually searching for a bit of balance, a bit better balance distribution between the front and the rear. And, uh, we are heavily testing on what the effects of 29 and 27 on the rear change the right dynamics. Uh, but we're able to do that on the on the new team bikes with changeable dropouts as well so it's super easy to do it without compromising the geometry uh, or the leverage ratios or stuff like this you just you can then really feel what the wheel size does for you in terms of grip and balance but also what it does dynamically speaking in terms of okay the bike doesn't corner like the the mullet wheel kind of likes to tip into corners a bit easier because the axle to axle is actually not level with the ground so uh, speaking of these dynamic things they they have now time until i think february march to figure out what they want and then the race bike will be built according to what they need so 27 or mullet setup was mainly coming from from our development cycle at that time but uh, we're certainly not uh, opposing any uh, uh, 29 29 setup it actually has a lot of benefits And you can see in EWS as well where the tight the tracks are quite a bit more tight that still like guys like Jack who are a bit taller can do amazing things on 29er setups and still have a bike that's flickable and enjoyable to ride so I think you need to have the rider's opinion or preferences and then match it with your bike characteristics and dynamics in order to make a a good riding bike. So that doesn't mean you need to choose either one of those.
0: Sure. And yeah, the swappable dropouts seem like a great way to just give folks the options to run whatever works best for them. And I think one of the things that you touched on there about the tendency of mullet bikes to sort of tip into a corner a little quicker is certainly very consistent with my experience reviewing and testing a whole bunch of them at this point and i think one of the things that i have personally found to help mullet bikes feel better balanced and not quite so like the rear end almost feeling a little bit floppy is having comparatively long chain stays, which you have certainly done um and if i have it right the current bikes have options for 455, 460, or 465-millimeter stays?
1: Yeah, it it depends on what version you're talking about. We started out with 450, I think, on the initial prototype because of the rearward axle path, and that changes it dynamically. But we went up to 465 on Lino's bike last year. Because this is, in my opinion, this is my personal opinion. This doesn't have to apply to anyone. The problem is with modern bike geometries, we're growing and some companies have gotten that same idea, I think now, or especially, for example, Norco, what they do with the growing chain sizes across the length, but front triangles have become so long. That's actually pushing us in a position where the upper body is moved a lot forward. So your, your upper body is in a way more aggressive position to keep pressure over the front wheel. So our philosophy was always, if you take a certain kinematic system, there has to be like a golden ratio between front and rear center. And that changes on what kinematics you use, of course, with a, with a high pivot system is different than with a normal, let's say, horse link system. But that needs to be in balance enabled to, you as a rider, you don't have to move your body so much between front and rear. In order to load the real wheels correctly, in order to not have an understeer or oversteer characteristic, depending on your preferences, because I like an oversteer bike usually. But the funny fact is, I get longer chain, stay, uh, chain stays every time I do a new prototype. So I went from 450, then we went back to 445 for the initial Se- Sego prototype. And then now I'm on a 460 prototype again. Um, But that has all to do because when you go on a trail ride, that's a different story than when you're racing downhill. So on a trail bike, I like to have the shorter chainstay for flickability and, you know, just popping off things. But when you're racing downhill, you want all the stability you can have in order to charge. And then the funny fact is actually the reach is getting shorter as well. So you're moving the balance more over the back wheel. So you're able to kind of ride the rear wheel a bit more without losing grip on the front end. So uh, I'm one meter 78. I don't know what that is in, in foot, but uh, so uh, I'm like an average size dude. And my reach on the downhill bike is 4, 455, but I run a 460 chainstay. Uh, so, but then a wheelbase at like 1300 mils. So the balance of the bike is pretty, pretty centered. So that allows me to ride in a very neutral and comfortable position where I don't have to force myself over the handlebars so much. So I get less fatigue in my upper body. I can do much more with my legs, which is just a stronger muscle and it actually puts less stress on your lower back as well. So you're actually able to have this nice, what we call the ideal body balance position in terms of how you position yourself on the bike, but that changes from rider to rider. So that's also why we said, okay, we want changeable dropouts and we, make a, a big steer tube that fits uh ZS 56 uh, cups or so the big cups. So you can do reach adjust and angle adjust and everything you want in order to get every rider comfortable with with the frame size. So,
0: Yeah, I'm pretty on board with that philosophy that you just laid out too. That's pretty nicely in keeping with kind of my own preferences and sort of what I'm figuring out as well so uh i like the sound of that quite a bit (laughs) and so just beyond the bike itself i'm kind of curious to hear about running a factory team as a smaller brand as you've done because kind of like we were saying up top uh it's maybe not the most typical pathway to going about development and getting a bike out into the world but you know like you said too you've sort of started this whole project with a focus on racing and so it's from that perspective supernatural that you would just want to really keep that going kind of how's that all come together and what's it been like trying to juggle all of that with the bike development and everything else you have going on
1: yeah so um i have to give big credits to my brother and Romeo. Um, enabling me to focus more on the engineering side and them basically running the team now. And also to my parents and all the other people involved, like our video guys, our photographers, and people we had uh, in our network for a long time since we are racing since I think 20, 2009 now as a, as a team. So uh, racing is just our natural environment, I guess. And that's come that comes really natural to us in terms of how you need to lead how you need to provide environment to athletes in order to to perform as well and we we learned a lot throughout the years on that and i think we're just at the point now where we can actually start leveraging that experience and then also because we had good relationship with within the bike industry with certain individuals like chris from from Hayes and back then it was uh, another guy doing uh, marketing, Dr. Angler, <laughs> um, Tim, uh, who enabled us to basically present our stories to companies like the Hayes group with money Manitou and the, all these guys our opinion and uh, to get involved in a program because it's just I think it's just a good story to tell, like similar to what Nico does with his own project. People can relate to that thing. And that enabled us to basically get bigger partners than a team of our size would usually get. And then I think what also helped a lot is that we have, besides our racing team and our bikes manufacturing verticals, we have a third vertical, which is a national distribution for bike components. So we're also the national distributor for the whole Hayes Group for a bunch of different other brands. I think it's like a two and a half thousand different products we support like or supply to over 400 shops here in Switzerland. So this whole weaving together of these three business streams kind of makes sense because we can kind of help develop product, but we're also providing hopefully better customer service because we know the products. And we know we can give you a hint or like a wink on something that you might not get to know if you're uh, if you're just a conventional service center or distributor distributor. So it has been tough on hours because when Dominic and Romeo are away doing their thing with racing, it's often me and a good friend of mine, Chris, uh, running running the distribution business here. But also then. Dominic and Romeo has provided us with super well organized structures in terms of how the shipping works and all, you know, all the little administrative things uh, that need to get along with running a business successfully in the long term. So I think that was just the normal, for us, the most natural way to do it and everything else or everything we do besides racing is like a consequence of racing. And we want to share this experience and this know-how with, with a wider range of, of uh, bikers specifically. It's, for now it's Switzerland and maybe what you call the Dach area, which is Germany, Austria, Switzerland, German speaking areas uh, in Europe, where we can have good customer relationships at the end of the day. But um, again, it's been, and it's not finished yet. I think 23 will be similarly intense. Uh, as it was before, it's a lot of 80 hour weeks, it's a lot of traveling, it's a lot of getting stuff done and uh, riding the edge a lot of time because basically everything we, we gain in the distribution business, we reinvest and into the bike side of things or in the racing thing. And then, you know, you're actually trying to push that uh, scale curve as hard as you can so everyone is living off the absolute minimum. Uh, of the company owners and not taking stuff out, but having a great network with like-minded people and passionate people that come in and help out and uh, make the business grow quicker actually enables us to now have additional workforce with our friend Chris working here one day a week, giving Romeo and Tommy another another day out either at the stores or at the races or at testing and stuff like this. So. I think, uh, yeah, it's just a lot of hard work. But when you don't do it, people always have the illusion that maybe an overnight success is something you can achieve. In our opinion, there's no overnight success. Every and we're not even considering ourselves successful by by far. But uh, you need to get at least 10 years of hard work until you're able to blow up. <laughs> and we're not even close to blowing up, at least in our view. So.
0: Yeah, everything worth doing takes some hard work, and it seems like you're (laughs) certainly putting the hours in. I guess along those lines, where do you see yourselves at as far as production bikes go at this point? What's it looking like on that front?
1: Yeah, we have a few things lined up. So there is a trail bike coming next year, which is more of a kind of traditional design. So it uses still some of the CNC experiences we did uh throughout the last few years but it also incorporates fiber construction we're actually able to build a fully 100 swiss made carbon fiber uh, bike here in switzerland which will be coming to market soon so uh, yeah once that's up we will get a note <laughs> um so that has been quite a cool journey with roman another friend of ours or the one out of the network to develop that um, so that will be more a uh, consumer friendly product in terms of it's not a race bike, it's a everyday bike. So it has, there's a few options. But basically speaking, it's a 130 mil aggressive trail bike. So you can go up to 150 mil fork and we have a lot of customization options with it. And I think what we are able to provide to customers here is you can actually come into the production side and have a look when they're actually doing the layup. You can have a look when they're doing your colors. You can have specific layups if you want to. So there's a lot of customization options coming with along with that. Just taking the customer on the complete uh, customer journey. That's not starting at the store, but it's starting at the factory by choosing what you want and then being able to uh, have it sent to the store. The store does then the build up with forks and stuff, you know, all the add-ons um so that will be coming to life i think in 23 somewhere around and then there's also a new generation of the dh bike coming so the guys are actually out testing this stuff now so we're there's a a bit of invention going so taking basically taking the concept you've seen already to the next level in terms of weight so i can give you some key points so we're saving about a kilo of weight so that's like a two pounds i think something like that So we're actually now uh, able to be, weight-wise, quite competitive with other World Cup bikes out there. Uh, The belt driving is coming in, so we're super excited about that. And then also continuing the work we started with the Hayes Group and Schwalbe and all the other partners. So just really starting to leverage that first year of properly doing our own thing in the World Cup with those guys together in order to, yeah, just approach this whole thing holistically and being able to now bring the next or actually the first iteration that the or evolution of what we started with in terms of like having that different approach and looking at it very holistically. So uh, we're super excited about that. And that's also where the fun is for us, because uh, that's where you get the reward from seeing your guys um, after struggling initially and then qualifying at your home World Cup and having career best, getting a under seventeen uh, World Championship or World Champion rookie's championship title with Mike our junior rider, that that's where all the satisfaction is. And having happy customers and returning customers at the end of the day, that's really what we're up for. And now, with 23 is the time for us to make the as they say in business language, pivoting the company uh, to become. Uh, eventually, the plan is to go maybe to fifteen full-time jobs in a year, in three years, and having a sustainable business here in Switzerland, where we can offer great services and products to to our customers and friends, and to make them happy out on the trails and have uh, everything they wish for. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're looking into for the next
0: yeah two three years. Just a couple of things on your plate, then.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not fun being not fun being lazy for us so uh, there's no nine to five for us (laughs) and we actually don't want to so i think uh, that's that's super cool for us
0: yeah well a lot of exciting things in store there and looking forward to seeing how it all goes and learning more about that trail bike when the time comes and all the rest so sure yeah It's been a lot of fun. Pascal, thanks for coming on and best of luck with everything.
1: Likewise. Thanks, David. Yeah, we catch up, mate. (laughs) Thanks for
0: having me on. Cheers. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Pascal for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister... Please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.